0: Hello friends, welcome back to the show. My guest today is Rob Henderson. He's a PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge and a US Air Force veteran. Men fight. Sometimes they look silly when they fight, but also they collaborate and team up to take on common enemies. Women fight in different ways that are less obvious, but no less vicious, and sometimes try to even scupper their own teammates. Expect to learn how men's judgments of formidability are better at predicting future sexual partners than women's judgments of attractiveness, why male intrasexual competition is so much more obvious, my theory around why men hate to hear that women like dad bods, why there are rules in a no-rules street fight, what happens if you get kidnapped by an Amazonian tribe, and much more. Don't forget that if you are listening, you should have also got a copy of the Modern Wisdom reading list. It is 100 books that you should read before you die, 100 of my favorite fiction and non-fiction with a little summary from me and an explanation of why I like them. They're grouped and categorized, plus there are links to go and get them straight away. So if you need some new reading suggestions, go there. chriswillx.com slash books has it right now for free, and you can download it immediately. chriswillx.com slash books. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, thousand companies have already made the move. So do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash modern right now. That's netsuite.com slash modern. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Rob Henderson. just defended your PhD thesis. What's that mean? That's right. So PhD
1: thesis, it's called a dissertation in the US, they call it a thesis. Here in the UK, it's just it's a culmination of the work you do throughout your years of study in a doctoral program. So at least within the field of psychology, typically you write, uh, you know, a handful of papers, maybe three or four papers. And it's all supposed to build toward some overarching a hypothesis, some kind of framework, and you run a series of empirical studies, and you know, hopefully, you get the results you're looking for. And then that sort of, you know, it sort of builds towards, you know, here's here's what all all of this means. Here's how it contributes to the research, to the literature more broadly. And uh, it's supposed to be this sort of original piece of scholarship. It doesn't necessarily have to be empirical either. Sometimes it can be theoretical. Uh, and I'm sh- sure there's like a whole other set of uh, criteria for the humanities, but. Yeah, it's a it's a huge relief. I mean, people say, you know, oh, when you finish your PhD thesis, you're going to be so happy. You're going to be so thrilled And I was just like relieved. You know, afterwards, I was just like, oh, thank God it's over. Like, it's done. It's you know, even though it went well, you know, I got the outcome I wanted. Uh, it was still just, um, you know, it was still more just like this burden is lifted rather than just feeling uh, elated or something. You know,
0: what's the thesis?
1: So the title of my PhD thesis is physical and social threats, fortify moral judgments. And I got really interested in this uh, when I was in undergrad, so I was taking uh, classes by this experimental philosopher, Josh Nobe, who uh, that's where basically I learned that you can use the tools of empirical psychology and social science to test people's moral intuitions and morality generally has been kind of the wheelhouse of philosophy, you know, armchair philosophers, you know, pondering what is morality, you know, what does it mean to be a moral person? What is moral character? And with you know some some of the uh, the instruments in psychology, you can come along and say, like, well, what do people actually think about morality? What does the average person think about it? And you know, maybe some of your listeners will know about, you know, like administering the the trolley problem to people. Would people flip the switch? Would they not? That kind of thing. And I was taking classes with with Paul Bloom, too, uh, when I was in an undergrad and learned about the sort of developmental origins of morality. And while I was there, I learned about this interesting link between disgust and morality. And many people think of disgust as this emotion that people experience uh, in response to, uh, you know, contamination, illness, infection. But there's a lot of interesting work indicating that it overlaps with our moral uh, judgments as well, that people who are very sensitive to disgust also tend to condemn wrongdoers more harshly. Uh, If you induce disgust in people, show them some disgusting images or uh, get them to smell some repulsive uh, odors, subsequently their moral judgments become intensified. And so I was. I thought to myself, you know, when I was reading all of this, and when I came to Cambridge, I was wondering, is there, you know, are there other forms of threat beyond contamination? You know, contamination is a threat to your survival. It's a, it's an evolutionary threat. Are there other kinds of evolutionary threats, challenges to your survival and and potentially your reproduction, um, that could also uh, intensify your moral judgments? So I did some stuff on you know people who were worried about COVID in 2020 were also uh, stricter in their moral judgments for a variety of different kinds of uh, moral violations, not just things like, you know, some of the items I used were, uh, you know, using a stranger's toothbrush. How wrong do you think that is? And of course, like, of course, people who are worried about COVID will also say, like, using a toothbrush that doesn't belong to you is, you know, that's that's horrible. But it was also things like, uh, you know, betraying a family member or stealing from a store. You know, kind of deception, betrayal, subversion—things that are unrelated to contamination. People who were worried about COVID were uh, stricter with those kinds of violations, similar to social threat as well, similar to age. The age one was the most interesting to me. Um, mm. I'm I'm working on on this paper, trying to get it published. I think you and I might have talked about this offline before too. Uh, that essentially. Uh, there's an there's a direct association between as people grow older, their moral judgments become stricter, and this is controlling for uh, political orientation. It's controlling for income, for education. You know, so these kind of demographic variables that you would assume, you know, oh, when older people, you know, as they as they age, they become more politically conservative, and that's why they adopt these sort of moralistic attitudes. But even when you control for that, uh, there's something going on here about a- the aging process, and I suggest it has something to do with vulnerability risk perception. As you grow older, um, the threats around you appear uh, to be especially formidable. And I suggest this is also potentially why um, there are these interesting moral judgment differences between men and women, such that women are more uh, strict in their moral judgments relative to men. And some of that can be explained with um, just the reproductive uh, differences between men and women. Women have historically been uh, more at risk, you know, more at risk uh, for when they're pregnant, when they're carrying young children, they should just be extra alert to potential dangers. Uh, but I also suggest that if you control for certain things like muscularity, uh, height, BMI, all of these other kinds of things, I would bet that the moral judgment differences and disgust sensitivity would actually shrink. I just think that if you're a sort of a, a strong, young, robust and healthy person, the world just looks less dangerous to you. And, and this includes moral wrongdoers. You think like, ah, oh, that guy's doing something bad, but I can I can take him. This is sort of the, the 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 punchline of of what my thesis is
0: about. Very interesting. So, I think we spoke about this last week. That a lot of evolutionary researchers think that morality is basically just rule, adaptive rules for human survival, uh, given more fluffy and philosophical language. Oh,
1: interesting. I, uh, I mean, I wouldn't call them even even rules really. I mean these are at least, you know, the best versions of, I think, evolutionary psychology and social science research. It's supposed to be descriptive, right? It's sort of, here's how things are. Evolutionary psychology, it's about, here's how things were in the ancestral environment. A lot of people get those confused, right, where they think, um, oh, we evolved to, to do X because that's, um, you know, evolutionarily advantageous, but it's actually evolutionary advantageous in the uh, ancestral environment, right? We're we are what is it we're stone age beings and in, in the in the sort of space age or something along you know we're, we're in the modern environment we didn't evolve to live in a world with you know limitless calories endless entertainment you know drugs that can stimulate the dopaminergic system in your brain like all of this stuff right but a hundred thousand years ago you know there there are certain mental adaptations that helped us survive in that kind of environment and so they're not really rules necessarily and in fact you know there's a lot of the 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 Psychological mechanisms that we have—they actually sort of evolve to to counteract other people's psychological mechanisms as well. You know, like there was uh, there's debate right now, I think, about you know age differences in um, in relationships, for example, where women might shame men for being interested in younger women, and some men will uh, you know they'll, they'll say something like, "Well, we we evolved to be attracted to young women," and that's true. Men did evolve to be attracted to younger women because, you know, in the evolutionary environment, younger women were more fertile and so on. However, women evolved to use and, and well, people in general. But in this context, women evolved to use moral norms to shame men so that they in turn can uh, uh, be exploited in advantage there as well. Right. right. Such that they can exp- um, sort of shame high-status men into not dating younger women and date them instead. And that in itself is an evolutionary mechanism. So you have all of these sort of competing modules and mechanisms and processes, and each person is trying to uh, uh, obtain an advantage sort of at the level of the genes, right? And so, you know, we can, we can lob evolutionary mechanisms at each other. Well, I evolved to do this, and you evolved to do that, and you know what I mean? So so I think uh, that, that's also important to keep in mind when, when people sort of use evolutionary explanations as an excuse for this or that behavior. It's you know, people are going to use their own sort of evolutionary prerogative to, to undercut that as well. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I mean, intrasexual competition has been one of the most fascinating things that I've learned about this year. Uh, I had Christina Durante on talking about it. And then I've got uh, Joyce Benenson uh toward the end of this year oh she's great yeah who's just going to be such money she's one i think maybe the last episode of this year and i can't i can't wait to have her on but you will you sent me an article that you've got that's just come out called the male warrior hypothesis what's that
1: yeah yeah the male warrior hypothesis uh it's funny so, so joyce benenson has written about this uh as have others and it's a hypothesis within the evolutionary psychology research Uh, basically suggesting that men and women evolved different psychological mechanisms to deal with within-group and between-group conflict. And so, you know, based on a series of different studies, uh, as well as sort of combing through the anthropological and archaeological record, researchers have suggested that, essentially, men are uh, more hostile within their groups to one another, uh, especially overt hostility, yeah, you know, so there's research indicating, you know, early on, it was it was considered basically undisputable that men were more aggressive to one another. Um, but then when researchers sort of expanded this definition of aggression, they actually found no differences, no significant differences once they accounted for indirect aggression, things like rumor spreading, ostracism, either ending a friendship or threatening to end it, those are sort of these uh indirect aggressive acts. And so in those cases, um, There's no difference, but the overt hostility uh, that men show one another is is definitely more pronounced relative to women. Uh, However, researchers have also found that um, that men are more likely to suppress their hostility toward one another when they encounter uh, another group of men, say a group of outsiders. And they hypothesize that this is because in the evolutionary environment, when men are especially young men, most of this is going to be in the context of young men when they're within a group, say uh, an evolutionary band 50 or 100 thousand years ago, uh, it's in their interest to sort of one up one another, mock one another, tease one another and look good in that community, especially because they're trying to impress uh, young women. Uh, But men also evolved to band together and to either defend their community from uh, uh, hostile outsiders and invaders. And they evolve to be those hostile uh, invaders and go uh, uh, capture resources and women and territory from other groups as well. And so, essentially, men are are simultaneously more hostile and more cooperative, whereas women uh, their their aggression is expressed indirectly and verbally and sort of in this roundabout way. And yet, when they uh, compete with other women, it's uh, it appears that they're less likely to suppress that, uh, that, that hostility that they show one another. And there was a, there was a study that came out, uh, this year, Joyce Benenson was an, was an author uh, of this paper and they were looking at, uh, high school and college athletes. And they basically found that, uh, you know, they, they asked these athletes questions about how they interacted with one another when they're on the team and how they interacted when they were competing against other teams. And they found that, Generally speaking, especially for acts of overt aggression, male athletes reported more from their own teammates, you know, name calling, fist fights, shoving each other. Like, I think one of them was like spitting on me, uh, you know, getting shoved in a locker, like all of the kinds of stuff that, that, that happens uh, in, in male sports teams. Right. And, you know, men reported more of that happening between one another. Uh, but then when they when they asked the, the male athletes about how they competed with one another against another sports team and how much hostility they showed their own teammates, it was it was very low. Uh, and essentially it seemed like the the hostility they they typically directed toward one another suddenly became hyper focused on defeating the other team, whereas for the female athletes uh, they reported uh you know a relatively high amount of indirect aggression, rumors ostracism, one of the items was uh, you know have you what have you ever been left out when the other teammates went out uh, went to dinner without you things like that going out to eat without you um and there were relatively high levels of that. And then they asked these these female athletes uh, about their experiences playing with their teammates against another team. And, and again, like the, the the rates of of intragroup, so within group hostility were actually still relatively high. Uh, you know, women relative to men were less likely to pass the ball to one another or shun one another or like, you know, maybe whisper something to another girl, uh, things like that. And so. Um, so the overall idea of this male warrior hypothesis is that yeah guys uh, are are sort of extra hostile uh, in in basically every single context, but in a sense they're actually more cooperative as well. In that you know when they're up against another group, another team, perhaps another army or an invading force, uh, they can sort of let those tensions go and you know c- c- uh, come together with one another. And you know I, I think this this distinction between Indirect versus direct aggression is important. And it's interesting because, you know, so so I I'm in that piece that that I, I sent to you about the male warrior hypothesis. I um discussed this excerpt from this book uh, called Yanoama, and it was recommended on Twitter by by the great David Buss, who I know you've had on this show. And this is an amazing book. This. Uh, so it's the Spanish girl, this European girl. In the 1930s, gets kidnapped by these uh, these Amazonian. In the book, you know, the book was came out in the 1960s, so they refer to them as Amazonian Indians. Um, and she's kidnapped as a young girl. And one of the one of the stories she tells in her recounting of what happened to her throughout this experience, um, and she lived with them for decades uh, through with, with with various bands of of Yanomama uh, tribes. Yanoama is the sort of overarching name for uh, a whole series of foraging communities uh, in in South America and They're constantly at war with one another in conflict. I mean they they're sort of like modern-day hunter-gatherers essentially and so Helen Valero says that when she arrived in this new tribe there was a a girl there who didn't like her you know a a girl who was roughly the same age as her and gave her this packet of, of folded leaves and said like, here, here's a snack for you. You must be hungry. And Helen takes this snack and she smells it and she's repulsed by the, the, the odor. And so she sets it down somewhere. And then uh, uh, a few hours later, a little boy in the in the tribe falls deathly ill. And he says he got this uh, this little leaf packet from from Helen. You he say, you know, she gave it to me. And the whole entire tribe turns on her. And they're like, why did you try to poison this boy? Like, who is this outsider girl who's trying to poison us? Like, why are you doing this to the children? And they ostracize her and banish her. And she she like literally is running through the forest while several of the men are are shooting arrows at her trying to kill her. And they're the yeah. So 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 this was an interesting example of of kind of this indirect aggression. Right. I mean, it's not like this girl, like, you know, went up to her and bashed her head with a rock or something. She gave her a snack knowing that Two things could happen, right? Because, by the way, when she gave her the snack, she said, if you don't like it, because she saw Helen smell it and say, I don't I don't like the smell. And she said, well, if you don't like, it, you can give it to someone else. So you do. Two things could happen. Either Helen eats this and dies or she gives it to someone and is responsible for the death of someone else and gets ostracized. So that's a win win situation. And this is an act of indirect aggression. But if Helen were to die in this situation, you know, this is this, this girl, Helen Bolero, um, The girl who gave her the snack would not be counted as her murderer, Right like the the sort of steps between the snack and the death of Helen Valero you know there there are steps involved such that the girl would not be blamed for this and i think this is a sort of a, a an extra interesting example of of indirect aggression that is you know often more perpetrated by women relative to men and you know, I I write it there that you know if, if if this had been a situation among men where like this new outsider male comes in and the other guys don't like him, they're not like hmm, how can I like you know kill this guy directly? It would be like you know like basically stepping up on him and be like show me what you're made of and just like shove him, or they'd they'd organize a way to kill him in his sleep. You know, it would be a for a very sort of direct and forceful attempt to put this this uh, newcomer in their place, and so this to me sort of gets at this this difference between um, you know this sort of overt male aggression versus covert female aggression
0: why do you think it is that women don't seem to band together against uh, an outgroup foe in the same way that men do it's an interesting question one
1: one possibility and, and perhaps the the most you know the the more the more sort of uh, convincing possibility to me is, you know, sort of riffing on this, this quote from the evolutionary psychologist, uh, John Tooby, uh, he was a sort of a pioneer of the field. And he had this line, it was something like, you know, cultural, very, like, I'll, I'll believe that cultural variation is responsible for, uh, uh, you know, the, the, like human nature, if you show me uh, an example of a tribe in which women band together to capture men as husbands. And, you know, there's, there's literally no example in the human record of women ever doing that. And there's, uh, there's another story from the, uh, the anthropologist, uh, Napoleon, I, I don't know if I'm getting his name, his last name was like Shagnon, C-H-A-G-N-O-N. And he talks about how, so he, he would spend time, he actually spent time with the, with the Anawama, uh, in South America and his belief, as was the belief of many other anthropologists at the time, is that, you know, the the reason why men in these small scale tribal societies go to wars over resources it's and especially over meat, you know, capturing territory, finding good grounds for hunting and those kinds of things. And he, uh, you know, he floated this idea to these uh, to, to to these uh, uh, Yanawama tribes and they laughed at him and they're like, that's not where we go to war. man. We go to war over women like that's the reason we like like we like meat, but we like women a lot more. Was actually a direct line that he put in his book, um, and so that is probably the reason, right? I mean, throughout this book uh, that David Buss recommended on the, you know, it, it, there are just countless cases of men like you know getting into conflict both within the groups, uh, uh, to to say like you know who's going to marry this young woman, or you know who's who's uh you know who's going to come together to to take to take out the other the other uh, tribes around them. And there's just constant male-on-male violence and conflict. And it's almost inevitably uh, subtle, uh, surrounds this idea of, um, you know, who is going to marry who or who's going to have children with who or who's going to have more, you know, more sexual partners. And men have a stronger sex drive. They have more interest in variety. They have uh, a sort of a, a, a reputational concern to demonstrate how tough they are uh whereas women don't necessarily have those same set of concerns and also because you know women are the more valuable sex biologically so they don't want to get involved in physical conflict
0: right okay yeah uh, it is interesting to me that the tribalism that we see amongst everybody smeared across society seems to Mm. fall apart at least a little bit when men aren't in the picture uh and it's Mm. Like you're you're talking about basically women banding together against an out group less than men would on average, right?
1: Yeah, especially the sort of overt hostility, right? So so a lot of the research supporting the male warrior hypothesis, you know, it indicates that that men show you know higher levels of of uh, preference for the in group, more like xenophobia and more sort of uh, den- denigration of of you know generally the the out group whereas for women it's it's less overtly expressed right it's it's more sort of fear and avoidance you know like if there's this sort of strange force just just avoid it stay away from it and and don't cause any trouble um yeah so so that is you know there's this sex difference there
0: the interesting thing i suppose is that it suggests that human cooperation is a consequence mm. of human competition like that one of the main right. reasons that cooperation exists is simply because human competition was so high Yeah.
1: Yeah, there's there's some interesting uh, research on the, you know, they've done some sort of mathematical modeling where they pit, um, you know, these these sort of computerized simulations of, well, you know, what if what if one group cooperates all the time versus some of the time? And, you know, what if one group always competes and so on? But basically, they find that these two things tend to arise simultaneously, that you can't really get the kinds of high levels of cooperation that you see with humans without high levels of competition as well. I mean, Humans are like by far the most cooperative species on the planet. I mean, we like literally can coordinate millions or or even billions of people across the globe. Whereas, um we're also the most sort of deadly species as well, where we'll get into sort of mass scale killings and conflict and genocide and all those things. But in order to pull off a genocide, you actually have to be an extremely cooperative species is the kind of irony of that. Right. Richard Wrangham has written about this and others is like, you know, that sort of uh, there's that double sided aspect of our nature is that cooperation can lead to sort of incredible levels of, of mass conflict and and competition.
0: Uh, yeah, because the cooperation enables you to be able to deploy that competition at scale and leverage it in increasingly vicious ways. Didn't, I seem to remember you wrote about people presume that humans have got more aggression than other animals and that we're totally undomesticated and that the wild is perfect without us, but chimps show a 100 to 150 times the amount of aggression than humans do and the peace-loving bonobos show less aggression than the chimps but still, way more than any human society ever recorded.
1: Yeah, yeah, I wrote about that when I was discussing uh, Richard Wrangham's book. He's the uh, the Harvard evolutionary biologist. He wrote a great book called The Goodness Paradox. And yeah, some of the findings that he uh, unearths and discusses in that book, one of them was this. Yeah, you know, there's this general belief, like you know, if 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 someone is behaving. Um, you know, especially violently like a serial killer or something. We're like, oh, he's he's inhuman. You know, there's something wrong with him. Like, where's his humanity? Uh, and yet rich richard Rangham points out that like actually, you know, the, the ability to kill like at scale Large numbers of people that is uniquely a human ability, right? Like there's no chimpanzee who's committed like mass scale genocide against their own species the way that humans have and Yeah, I mean the the, the figures were were stunning. So so it was um, it was a hundred and fifty to five hundred times Ah, uh, so so chimpanzees specifically within their own groups, right? Like he's not even talking about inter, inter intergroup conflict among chimpanzees, just among their fellow group members, their peers. They're 150 to 500 times more violent than uh, human hunter-gatherer uh, coalitions, um, and and bonobos are roughly half that violent. So you know what what is that? Something like 250 times uh, more violent than than human beings. So yes, they're they're uh, they're half as violent as chimps, but still far far more more violent than human beings are. And so, yeah, there's uh, the whole self-domestication idea was was fascinating to me. This idea that, you know, and and you actually see a, a small scale version of this among chimps, but human beings even more so where part of the reason why humans are relatively docile and cooperative and can follow norms and all of these kinds of things and build societies is because we care deeply about what other people think about us We sort of have this built-in social anxiety, you know, some some researchers have called it the sociometer Of where we sort of monitor how we appear in the eyes of others And the reason why we have all this is because in the ancestral environment This is actually before the ancestral environment. So Richard Wrangham suggests this was maybe five or six hundred thousand years ago this started occurring what he calls the execution hypothesis which is that whenever an especially aggressive or hostile male appeared within a community uh, and started monopolizing resources or taking the other men's wives and so on, it was around this time that that humans started to form the ability to speak. So language evolved, the ability to use tools and weapons had evolved, and the sort of uh, uh, weaker and less formidable men were able to form the sort of whispering consensus of like, hey, this guy's a problem. Like he, you know, he took my wife, he took your wife, like, you know, what's going you know, So how do we get rid of this guy? And so they'd wait for him to fall asleep or they'd um, there's one example that he points out in the book of uh, of this hunter gatherer group. There was a there was this sort of bullying male that the others didn't like. And so I think they they dared him to climb up this tree to get some some, you know, particularly appealing fruit. And so the guy sets his weapons down. He's like, you know, I'll show you guys. Let me get this piece of fruit up at this tree. And he climbs up the tree. And when he comes down, the guys just, you know, they take his weapons that he had left and just start stabbing him. And, you know, problem solved. And so so the the guys who cared, uh, who who had no um or or little to no uh, um, sort of concern, About their reputation or how they appeared of like I'm just gonna do what I want and just be this sort of bad boy alpha male Um, if they weren't able to to cultivate allies and to uh, Sort of develop a reputation as a useful person in that group then the others would just kill them, right? And so we are the descendants of the humans who didn't die and who did sort of develop over time this concern about like you know any any kind of ridicule criticism any sort of stinging comment uh, that that lingers with us because you know in in the ancestral environment, you know
0: every single negative comment could have potentially life threatening consequences. Life is too difficult ancestrally for people to get through on their own, which means that inevitably you need cooperation. That means that you need mm-hmm. to temper down the aggression, the dark triad traits that you've got, all of that stuff. You need to bring that down to a level which is. Uh, perhaps sufficiently high that it means you are more effective than your competitors, but not so high that it crosses the threshold where you get your weapons taken away from you while you're up a tree and get stabbed on the way down. That's the balance. Yeah, yeah that's, that that's that's people are, are trying yeah, to strike. Yeah, that's
1: a neat kind of uh, Yeah, that's that's like a, it's a sort of a it's a neat way to tie that in what you're saying with the with the male warrior hypothesis, where you need a little bit of that sort of uh, aggression and that callousness. Uh, because, you know, if you had none of that, then you would just be overrun by a more aggressive community. Uh, but if you had too much of it, then the whole community would start to fall apart and people would be hostile and suspicious to one another.
0: Yes. Also, I suppose the males ancestrally that would have been a little bit more aggressive would have been seen as more useful. You know, Mm -hmm. they would have been formidable, uh, foes and useful allies for people to have. And again, it's pushing that too far. It's, it's, the, I, I've really, really enjoyed some of the conversations I've had about psychopaths recently. And uh, Kevin mm-hmm. Dutton, he's the uh, uh, head of the communication of science for Auckland University in, in Australia or Adelaide, maybe. Uh, and he was talking about this saying, it's adaptive to have a couple of psychopaths in your group because it means that if you've got to go and do some really messed up stuff, you can just send them in there. They're the special forces. They're the berserkers. They're the Vikings going to raid Lindisfarne or whatever. And it's useful to have them. But as soon as you start to get too many, it makes for a a very unstable society. So you can't hold on to that. Speaking about some of the... uh, Secondary sex characteristics and the male competition stuff. I had this idea about dad bods after I saw a competition online So there's a video. I saw a video go up about dad bods and I noticed in the comments a lot of male accounts Really really upset. They seem to be very triggered very uh, Discounting it was a woman that was talking about why she likes dad bods and why dad bods are superior to guys that think that they're in shape and a lot hmm. of guys in the comments telling this woman that she doesn't know what she's talking about, which, you know, it's just, it is the internet for you. And you don't know, I don't know how much this woman was posturing, how much she was doing it as a massive troll, whatever. And it got me thinking about why it is that guys seem to have such an aversion to women specifically praising and the press and the media sort of upholding dad bods as some sort of um a pedestal that men should try and attain. And I think that there's a lot of things going on here the first most obvious one is that guys that train don't want their efforts that they've put into their own physique to be in vain right Mm. that makes that makes a lot of sense Mm. they have decided that this is something which is worthy of getting there is almost no guy on the planet who would be able to say with a straight face that they're going to the gym and training hard without it including in that i'm doing this to make myself more attractive to women. Uh, or yeah. whoever it is that they're trying to be attractive to. So th- that's, a, that's a first one, but I don't think that that really accounts for anywhere near the kind of effect that we're seeing here. I think another element is that most men, even if they're not the sort of ones who go to the gym and train, would look at the body of a man that does go to the gym and train and respect it. And I think that Mm. one of the concerns that they see there is that they value something which is now being undermined by someone that they presume their model of the world is supposed to be able to understand. Hang on a second. I thought I understood what it was that women wanted. I kind of want this thing. I don't want it sexually, but I want it in a way of, I, I think it's something that's admirable. And, you know, the secondary sex characteristics that suggest that men actually get bigger and go to the gym more for formidability than for attraction Th- that that plays into mm. this pretty perfectly. <laughs> another element, I think, is if you roll the clock forward one more step from there, it might be a little bit of internalized homophobia from men that they look at another mm. guy who is... In good condition and they say i bet that guy slays puss i bet that all of the women want him i value his body i like that body in a a, a way that makes me think why am i looking at this guy's body somewhere? Oh, well it's because i want to model it for myself and you know it's a it's, a, it's me doing it for women <laughs> but then to be told hang on a second all of this that you're doing from a woman doesn't make any sense at all we not i'm not concerned about that might make you think oh holy shit this might mean I'm gay, uh, uh, and then there's a let-off <laughs> valve. Do you understand what I mean?
1: I do. That one seems. The other ones, I, I can. I those make sense. This one's a little too. I'm rolling know, the dice. I'm rolling the dice it's, here. Yeah, okay. Yeah. It's, but what, no, no, I, I like it. I think it's. Uh, it's. I, I like that. there's sort of the
0: creativity of it. It's. You know, there's like a Freudian element to it. I think it's. You know. It's interesting. Maybe I don't know. But I, here's the final yeah. thing. So I, I heard this story. Yeah, I yeah. told my friend about this idea yesterday. Uh, And he told me a story about one of his ex-girlfriends that mentioned she was happier with him the fatter that he got, and she was more unhappy with him as he got leaner. And I think that a big part Mm. of this is the level of comfort that is associated with having a partner that you know is not going to go anywhere else. I learned this uh, from Sarah Hill. She taught me that Mm. uh, men who have gut fat are perceived to be better fathers. And the reason that men who have gut fat, this is compared with the guy that's in good shape. And you think, hang on a second, how is the guy that isn't able to protect his family because he's less physically formidable going to be perceived as a better father? And the reason is that the guy who has more gut fat is seen to be less potentially attractive to other mates, which means that if he is given one calorie, there is less likelihood of him spending that calorie on trying to acquire a new mate because more doors have been closed to him than the guy that is in good shape and may potentially have more doors open to him. Basically, this guy's physique has shut off a number of different avenues down which he could invest his resources. Therefore, the guy that doesn't have as many avenues open must be the better father. So basically, there is like a when it comes back to the woman that, that was in a relationship who was happier when her partner got fatter, I think that being less uncertain about your partner's straying contributes massively to a woman who might have anxious attachment or maybe there's a disparity in mate value there that she is going to feel a lot more comfortable with that. But the wild thing when you think about this is that comfort contributes quite a lot to woman's arousal. Right, A woman's arousal is predicated, at least in part, on feeling comfortable. Now, yeah, mm. there's like ways that you can game this in the bedroom, but for the most part, it is. it appears that women have a high degree of comfort that they need to reach than men do. So there has to be, on a spectrum, from this guy is peeled out of his mind with the best physique on the planet and looks like a superhero and every woman wants to have sex with him, to this guy is super, super fat and completely disgusting, There is a spectrum between that upon which different women with their different uh, levels of comfort, both for a relationship and for attraction, are going to feel more or less comfortable. And there is a situation in which someone who was less in good shape would be more arousing and more attractive to a woman because her degree of comfort would be increased. So that's my thesis around dad bods, homophobia and comfort (laughs) in relationships for you.
1: Good. No, no, no. That was, no I, I think, well, okay. So, well, the, the, the first thing you said about, uh, you know, how, how men and women react differently to the whole dad bod phenomenon and, and, and men sort of get angry about it, you know, it reminds me, you've probably seen this meme, right, of like, you know, the, the guys sort of thinking, like, how I think it'll be when I get in really good shape. And it's like, you know, a bunch of girls in bikinis and how it actually is. And it's like all these boys say, yeah, man, you look jacked. This is awesome. And, uh, and you know, I, I think like there is I think there is something there's some some truth to that. Right. I mean, that's like, you know, even if you get really muscular, I mean, unless you're you're a celebrity or something like that, you know, the, the, the dream is not necessarily the reality there. Um, I think that like the whole the whole phenomenon around dad bods is maybe a little bit overblown. Like, I know it's sort of, you know, it's it's this trend online and people pay attention to it and talk about it and, and probably in part because it's it's like kind of controversial. It's it, it gets people talking. But if you actually look at the the research on, you know, well, what do women actually find attractive and, the, you know, you show them a series of bodies and, like, you know, the, the fatherhood one notwithstanding, like, that makes sense to me. But in terms of just, like, you know, which one of these guys – do you find the most attractive just upfront? like how sexually attractive do you find this kind of man? And generally speaking, it's guys who are in pretty good shape, uh, you know, very uh, unfit guys like really skinny and really fat guys are, are um, always at the bottom of the list in terms of who women find sexually attractive. Um, but there, there are some interesting things I think going on with with mate retention versus sort of uh, uh, obtaining a mate versus versus, you know, retaining a mate. And for women right that makes sense that especially for older women or women who are looking to settle down they don't want a guy who's sort of teed up you know and and full of testosterone and energy and looks really good because you know in all, all likelihood he, he probably has other uh, other interests besides just the one woman and so they know that if a man is you know spending maybe more time at home or do you know spending more time on other things besides his physical appearance he has different priorities Um But I wonder if like if there was any way to control for that, if they would still, you know, if like they could just like, I don't know, this is like, like, take a really good looking guy. He's not allowed to leave your house, right? Like, he's not allowed to go anywhere. He's not allowed to post thirst traps on on Instagram. He's yours. He's going to raise your kids. Now, do you like him? And I think a lot of women would be like, okay, you know, in that case, you know, I'll take him over the dad bod guy. I don't know. This, you know, I still think like there's there's something innately attractive just on a sort of a visceral level. A uh, guy who, who who's in really good shape. But of course, like in the real world, in reality, um, women's priorities change. They also change based on short-term versus long-term mating, which you know I, I know you're familiar with too. Is you know for a one-night stand, a really good-looking guy is you know th- th- those are the kinds of guys that women find appealing. Versus someone for a more long-term relationship, you know women do place some importance on a how a guy looks, but they start to place more importance on other things like kindness and personality and sense of humor and income and all of these other sort of extraneous things too. So. Um, yeah, I, I like the the i mean the, the research on the body attractiveness thing is like, you know, muscularity is like by far the strongest predictor of like how sexually successful a man is. And you know, th- there's an interesting disparity here based on sort of like what what actually leads to sexual success among men. Is it actually how sexy women find you or is it sort of how much sort of admiration and prestige? And esteem you obtain from men and I think this may also be what's going on with the whole dad bod phenomenon too is like men even if you can't verbalize it right like even if you don't explicitly know I mean this is one of the sort of uh, the, the 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 key tenets of evolutionary psychology is like you don't have to know the reasons behind your behavior in order for them to be effective um, or even to know that like that's what they're doing right. Um, you know, there's this, there's this great, uh, example that Dan Dennett gives the philosopher in one of his books where, you know, a single celled organism swims towards nutrients without having any understanding of what it's doing or why. And yet it still does the thing that it needs to do to survive and, and, and to replicate. Um, and so, so humans are the same, right? Like we do things, we don't know why we have these feelings, we have these desires and emotions. And I think guys may know at a sort of implicit intuitive level that, you know, yes, it's important what women think. But it's at least as important what men think too, and so when men say, you know, this is the this is the the body that you want, this is the body that's desirable, and so on, they're thinking like that's probably I should probably place some importance on that too in terms of like getting jack, getting swallowed, those things, and this is borne out by some interesting research. For example, um, there was there was one study. Uh, this is like this is one of my, my like my favorite studies. Like this is a study that actually got me interested in like mating psychology and this kind of thing, which is that they they showed um. Uh, a series of uh, women uh, videos of men and these are just like very brief video clips and then at the end they asked these women uh, how sexually attractive is this man you know scale from one to seven you know not at all attractive to, to you know very sexually attractive and then they showed uh, a group of men the same videos of these same guys and asked them a different question and the question was you know how likely is it that this man would win a physical fight with another man And it was, you know, same kind of scale, like very uh, unlikely to very likely. And then the researchers uh, uh, tracked those men in those videos uh, and had them return 18 months later and asked them a bunch of questions, including, you know, basically how many sexual partners have you had over the last 18 months and the correlation between how sexually attractive The women found these men and how many partners they had was zero. There was no correlation at all between how hot they were to women and how many uh, uh, partners they had later. But there was a strong and significant correlation between how intimidating or formidable men rated them and how many sexual partners they recounted over the last 18 months. And so essentially how tough a guy looks to men is a stronger predictor of his sexual success than how attractive he looks to women And, you know, I think you can kind of like at first I found this study hard to believe this was this was replicated in a different study, by the way. So this this does seem to be a real phenomenon. And, you know, when I think about, you know, like even in my own personal life, guys, I know and stuff like the kind of like really good looking, like kind of pretty boyish kind of guys like they do. They do. You know, they don't do badly with women. But when I think about the guys who are like like athletes or guys who are just like really like obviously physically fit they do like much better you know if you, if you were to compare the two and i so i so at first i was a little skeptical but when i really started thinking about it i think it makes sense um and so so there there have been other studies like this too like hand grip strength correlates with number of sexual partners over the course of a lifetime and over the course of the past year um You know, there's there's other research indicating that if you ask women about their most recent short term sexual partner, they say that like, you know, that he was more muscular than than most of their other sexual partners. Uh, So in the researchers in that paper. Yeah, you know, they basically suggested that if a man is very physically fit and 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 muscular, he doesn't necessarily have to demonstrate uh, other kinds of qualities that men typically find attractive, because just sort of being physically fit is is enough for a, a short-term fling. Um, and in those cases, maybe women don't care quite as much about how kind he is or what his sense of humor is and all those kinds of things. Um, so so yeah, I think this this sort of distinction here between formidability for, versus sexual attractiveness really gets at sort of what what men are responding to and they understand that like maybe women find the dad bot attractive, but guys aren't going to be impressed by that. And and that's actually what's more important, right? So physically muscular guy walks around, like, you know, he's going to be the one that's intimidating. And in the end, like that's going to be the, the person who probably attracts more uh, uh, sexual partners uh, versus uh you know the sort of dad bot kind of guy. Um, and like more more generally I think this ties into the evolution of secondary sex characteristics among men and and why they evolved, right? I mean, so David Putz, uh, he's an evolutionary, I think he's an evolutionary anthropologist, and he's basically outlined, you know, like why do we have these these secondary sex traits as men? Ah, uh, you know, like because it's it's actually like it's calorically and energetically costly to have large muscles, like to grow, you know, extra hair out of your face. To, and your voice changes and modulates too, and that that also takes like extra energy to create that. Um, you know, thicker brows, uh, our our skulls are thicker, thicker bones, like all of these things. Like, what's the point of all of this? And he's hypothesized that this is actually, um, you know, the, all of our secondary sex characteristics, or many of them anyway, are are actually a. Uh, uh, Steve Stewart Williams, he says they're they're deer's antlers rather than peacock's tails, right? So the peacock's tail is a direct advertisement to women. Of Like look how beautiful and pretty I am and come mate with me Whereas the deers antlers like female deers don't care about how big a male deer ant, you know Deer antlers. those antlers are actually to be used in competition with with other uh, males and once they prevail then they're the ones who actually get uh, uh, more mating opportunities and so when David Putts analyzed, you know a, a whole series of of uh, conducted a whole series of studies basically asking men, you know how how intimidating do you find uh, deep voices versus not so deep voices, uh, muscular men versus not so muscular men, you know, guys with beards versus without beards? The beard one is interesting, too. Like if you, you know, women will debate endlessly about whether they find beards attractive or cute or not. But there's clear and straightforward evidence that men find men with beards more physically intimidating than men without beards. And so all of these things more than likely evolved, not necessarily to impress women, but actually to to, to sort of impress men. And this is also why sort of puberty is delayed. Uh, why you know the, there are all of these sort of peculiarities around you know the the way that the male body changes versus Wh- the way that the female body changes. Why, why puberty is uh. delayed? Uh, basically, because it, it sort of it, it takes longer. It takes longer to to uh, to to develop these these sex characteristics uh, for voice change, for muscularity, uh, and, and even things for for height. Right, like if you take like two year olds. Or rather, like on average, ten-year-old girls are taller than ten-year-old boys, and this this changes throughout puberty. But there's just this sort of delay, this delayed process uh, among boys because their body undergoes such a such a massive and and rapid change, and girls do too. But it's just uh, it's it's interesting. Like girls, it just seems uh it seems like it's uh it's it's less awkward, less overt. There's something else about it, like like when a, a boy's voice changes. And they're just sort of more ungainly the way that they move and everything because their body's just, you know, it's just a, it's a, you get this massive dose of, of, uh, this hardcore drug, right? Testosterone and androgens and all these other things. So it's really interesting, I think, this, this idea of, um, like masculinity, these sort of, uh, uh, masculine features and traits, uh, evolving as, as sort of competitive uh 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 secondary sex characteristics rather than, than to appeal to others and you know sometimes i wonder like can these things like can are there traits that humans might evolve that could could sort of push us too far and actually become detrimental so there's research on like the irish uh, uh the irish elk went extinct because their antlers grew too large and they could no longer hold their heads up and eventually they died, right? Because like there was this sort of runaway uh, selection process and this pressure of like the, the biggest antlers were usually the ones to prevail in contests, but eventually they got so big that they could no longer uh, mate and they couldn't reproduce themselves anymore. So maybe you guys would just like, muscles will get too big and you know, eventually we can't even take care of ourselves.
0: That Fisherian runaway stuff is so funny. <laughs> what, what does it mean to say that... Masculine traits amongst men seem and secondary sex characteristics seem to be more about formidability than attraction. They are antlers rather than peacocks' tails, because it seems like men judging other men's formidability is more accurate at uh estimating the number of sexual partners that a man has, so how successful he is with women than his attractiveness is. How given the fact that women say they're not attracted to it, and yet, the men that have these things are the ones that are the most successful. Does that not just mean that women don't know what they're attracted to? Hmm. Revealed versus stated uh, I, preferences. Yeah, yeah, that's that's
1: a good point. And I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm inclined to say that, like, they, I think they they would acknowledge that those things are like more attractive than than the average, or maybe not having those things but they would state, you know, this other kind of preference of like, yeah, I want a guy who's muscular, but not too muscular or something like that. Um, but yeah, there, there is this, I mean for, for human behavior in general, right, there's often this mismatch between what people say and what people do and yeah, stated versus revealed, revealed preference. And I think there is uh, there's something like that going on here too, where like it, for, for men, what, what is like the, you know, more so than for women, a strong predictor of your sexual success, your romantic success, is your status, right? And status is this sort of amorphous, unc- like you can't, like you know, you can't look at status under a microscope or something, right? It's something that that exists in the minds of other people, and people have to agree that you have it, right? Like you don't get to decide if you have it; other people do. And in this instance, um, throughout evolutionary history it seems that men have been the ones to confer status on other men more so than women and i know that jordan peterson's made this point too about like how you know there is sort of these uh, dominance or competence hierarchies and women sort of use those You know, they sort of uh, use this as a sort of cognitively outsource this burdensome task of picking a, a, a an attractive partner they just fill the, the guys off the top it of the, out the
0: hierarchy exactly
1: and they don't, like, oftentimes women don't even know or care what the contest is, right? I make this point in in, in that article uh, about how, like, women, a lot of women don't even, uh, like, they, they don't like sports or they don't watch sports, but they still find athletes
0: attractive, right? Dude, They're like, I don't
1: know what you're doing out in that field, but how, I love how athletes. How fucking you know?
0: good, how good would it be to create some sort of competition between men where the outcome was completely arbitrary. Let's say that it was um, (laughs) correctly picking the tosses of a coin, right? And you have this huge pool of men, a hundred men over time. And it's like a round robin type scenario. And then it's knockout stages all the way to the top and then get the women to rate the attractiveness of the men over time. And maybe run -hmm. run that a bunch of different times and run different women through and see if the guys (laughs) that won a competition, which was completely based in luck, are the ones that mm. are given more attractiveness, and if you can have someone you'd have to control it somehow where you had attractiveness before and attractiveness after, how much does winning a completely arbitrary game improve your attractiveness to women
1: it's a It's a good question. I think that it, so if you were to carry out that that experiment, you would need to have you need to introduce an additional uh, element, which would be uh, other men uh, respecting the winner. I think that's a key component here. It's uh, like it's not just winning the contest; yes. it's winning a contest that matters to to men in particular, right? Like if 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 you win the, the the coin tossing contest or whatever, and you
0: have a bunch of other guys being like,
1: "Oh, that was incredible, man! That was awesome!" Yes. You know, high fives. Yeah, you need to you need to observe them
0: being yeah. competitive, pedestalizing yeah. the person that won. Ex- yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I think that is the uh, th- that that would actually be be the key here for for women, sort of. Uh, what like their the variability of their attractiveness ratings would shift somewhat based on that, um, and I think like basically like uh, uh, there there's just like interesting papers on this about like how you know so so the sports competition is one where maybe women aren't particularly interested in sports, but yet they find athletes attractive. Uh, historically, um, you know, a lot of women, even educated women, were were illiterate. And yet they still found uh, 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 well-known authors to be attractive. Uh, you know, like they they find painters and artists attractive, you know, even if they may not necessarily understand what's going on with the art. But they see that the, the, the respect and prestige that the artist accrues from the art community or from the sort of uh, the, the the class of people that they're around, those kinds of things. And so I mean, you can see this with I mean, to me, one of the more amusing examples of this is like uh, guys who play video games on YouTube get groupies, you know, like you're just like uh, this guy like playing games and like uploading a live stream and commenting on it. And they have a million subscribers or whatever. And uh, and I've seen like news coverage and media articles about like, yeah, he's a, a 19 year old kid who plays video games all day and he's getting love letters and, you know, girls messaging him on Instagram and all this stuff. And it's like if he was just a dude. Sitting at home playing video games, he wouldn't get a single love letter, right? But the fact that he has uh, a million other nerds out there, like saying, like, "Oh, I love you, bad." You're, you know, We've you're pre-selected my one, this like, you're as pretty, the yeah, king
0: so. of our group. Well, yeah, it's so funny because the king of the gamers. Yeah, the same accusation that's thrown at men as them retreating from society and not being a viable mate for women. Video games in the basement, spending too much time on screens. If you just tune that up to high performance. And everybody else says, mm. yeah, I know that he's doing the thing that people say is the antithesis of being attractive to women, but he's the best at it. You go, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, now he's super attractive. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah there's, uh, I think, that, like, those, like, there's something about, um, like, winning the contest, but then also accruing respect and esteem and prestige of, of other people, right? I mean, there's, if, if you look at the research on, like, uh, um, the happiness uh, psychology research, um you know, sociometric status is a stronger predictor of happiness than socioeconomic status. And sociometric status is respect and admiration from your peers. That is the thing that is actually a stronger predictor of happiness than how much money you have or your, you know, sort of occupational status or something like that. And uh, and oftentimes, I mean, the reason why people work so hard to obtain so much money is to actually uh, uh, obtain the sort of affections of other people. Right. Like that's sort of ultimately what uh, people are, 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 are striving for, both both men and and women as well. Uh, and so, so that, that aspect of, of um, mating psychology about how, like, yes, it matters how you're viewed by the opposite sex. But to me, the interesting part of, of sort of, I guess, the male mating psychology aspect or, or what females sort of ultimately choose is, like, it, it matters at least as much what other guys think of you. You know that sort of is a is a more strong predictor than what the women think of you.
0: Yes, and downstream from what the men think of you is what the women are going to do with you, even if yeah. even yeah, if yeah, it yeah. isn't what they think of you. Do you think that this pre selection for mates works in reverse? Do you think that men are more attractive, more attracted to women that other women think are impressive or high status or whatever?
1: Hmm. I I think that it would it would probably be- the answer is probably yes, but the effect would be much smaller than the effect of of being, you know, uh, high status or prestigious or something in terms of like how you appear, to, how a man would appear to a woman. You know, there was a there was a fascinating study indicating that women are what was it, it was like women are a thousand times more sensitive to a man's uh, income or socioeconomic status than men are to women. And so in a positive direction, right, basically the more, you know, high socioeconomically you're doing in life, the more attractive you are to women. And so, you know, that that indicates that, like, yes, there's a positive effect for men, but it's one one thousand <laughs> the size <laughs> of the effect. So there's something there, but it's not a lot. There was, uh, uh, you know, there was there was there's some research on, uh, on on Tinder, you know, indicating that if you're a man with a master's degree, you get twice as many matches as a man with a bachelor's degree and a woman with a master's degree gets. I think it's eight or 10 percent more matches than a woman. with ba- So there's like these small effects like, mm. yeah, you'll get a little more. Your Your status can help, but not to the not to the same extent. I mean, it's it's interesting even with uh, with like your friends and your peer groups, you know, like what what men choose as far as like and this may sort of tie into the warrior hypothesis too, the male warrior hypothesis is that like men, if you ask men what kind of friends they like, you know, what 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 uh, characteristics would you desire in a male friend? Um men are much more likely than women. Young men are much more likely than young women to say they want a friend who's uh, creative, intelligent, ambitious, socially connected, all of the sort of qualities that are proxies for status. Right. And I think the reason for this is that beca- because status looms so large in male romantic prospects and, you know, basically some of that status can actually rub off. Right. Where like the trickle down. You effect. are uh yeah, it's just like what is that like like trickle-down like the entourage trickle-down effect or something where like if you're just friends or like a like a, a, a Hanger hanger on of like some rock star You're gonna get probably more attention than if you're just a random dude, right? Whereas for women, it doesn't quite work in the same way where like status You know, it, it's it probably being friends with like a female rock star or celebrity you do get some benefits but in terms of like being friends with them and attracting uh, uh, more men or a uh, higher, uh, higher quality mate or something like that, the effect is probably much weaker yeah, for them. Yeah, absolutely. So
0: it's just, yeah, it's just different, right? Think about the sort of changes in lifestyle that you would have. Yeah, you can fly around the world with your bestie, but it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be surrounded by good potential mates. Whereas if you manage to befriend Dan Bilzerian, then you, you, you... you, you <laughs> can expect the kind of life that you're in for so speaking of this i'm I'm thinking about the reversal again of this where women who pre-select men uh pete davidson that was in a relationship with kim kardashian and now appears to be slowly running through every hot chick in hollywood uh dan bilzarian as well it's just you know the the epitome of pre-selection other women find this man attractive. Therefore, other women downstream from that woman will think they've outsourced again their status-seeking radar to other women and gone, Mm -hmm. ah, that is a man that's potentially of high status. I mean, it's like commonly held wisdom when it comes to your dating profile online that at least one of the photos should have you with other women in it. And the other women should be quite Mm. attractive because it suggests that you are the kind of man that spends time around attractive women, which is pre-selection, I wonder whether the reverse would be negatively correlated for women if you were to see a Mm. woman regularly around different good-looking guys, that that would be disincentivizing to other high-status males that may be considering pursuing her.
1: So I've seen research on this. This was before the Tinder era. I think these papers were probably like around 2010. David Buss might have actually been an author on one of them. Where they, they basically did this sort of pre-selection studies where, you know, they'll, they'll show women participants, you know, a guy alone, a guy with a group of guys and a guy with a group of women and invariably the guy with the group of women, they found him more attractive. Um and they did the study with uh, with men where they showed a woman alone, women with female friends, and women with male. Friends. And they showed the, the the woman surrounded by males. They found her. I think she was the least attractive uh, to the man. <laughs> so it does it does sort of you know the, your prediction here was 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 right. Um, but I have seen research on dating apps where the effect it's it's more complicated. Where women will at least you know they'll say um that. If they see a man with uh, with lots of women, they rate him as less attractive or less desirable. And the reasoning there was that they basically think that this guy is not serious, right? Like, if this is the kind of picture you're going to put on your dating profile of you surrounded by a bunch of hot chicks, it's like you know this guy's you know he's he's not you know he's not a serious person. He's just going to use me, something like that. Um, so you know, th- and that's that's the sort of the, the the finding was they find him less attractive. And as far as like what kind of like the actual success of such a guy, that's a different kind of story, right? But I, I think like probably the safe bet for that would be um, like having a mixed mixed sex group, right? But make sure that like the women yes. in the mixed sex group are attractive, attractive. and, at and least maybe one closer of them is you next the, to you than the yeah 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 yeah,
0: yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly yeah, thinking along so, the same lines. So so I
1: think like the the pre selection thing is is key here, but yeah, the dating apps have kind of thrown things into disarray because like now people are just hyper uh scrutinizing of like why did you put this picture up what does it mean you know what kind of person are you all of those things whereas like you know if you just if they randomly find a picture of you like that it's it's kind of a different story
0: talk to me about the male monkey dance this is probably my favorite article from your Substack that you've written this year it was my i've shared it to way too many friends so break down what the male monkey (laughs) dance is for me
1: Yeah. So the male monkey dance was uh, written by this guy, Rory Miller, in a book called Meditations on Violence. And in that book, so he worked in law enforcement and he compiled interesting research and shared his observations and his findings in this book. And basically, the male monkey dance is uh, it's a sort of a ritualistic conflict between two males typically two males who don't know each other and it's a sort of a set a set of steps that 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 gradually escalate and so it's like you know step 1 it's the sort of hard stare step 2 this uh this sort of verbal uh sort of a verbal conflict of like what are you looking at or do you got a problem bro or like what's going on or like you know what's your problem that kind of thing And then step three, if it escalates is, you know, chest on chest, sort of chest bumping and maybe like the arms extend, right? I remember you had uh, Adam Hart on your podcast, the biologist, and he suggested that um, the reason why guys extend their arms out is to uh, increase the perception of body size. And this is also likely the reason why during weigh-ins for boxing and MMA, you always see these guys sort of expand their arms and like, you know, flare out their traps and their muscles and really to sort of broaden their shoulders and everything is to increase the perception of their size uh, and look more intimidating. And so guys will do that too when they do the chest bump and, you know, step through the monkey dance, chest bump, arms go out. Like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do about it? That kind of thing. And yeah, that's step four. If it, if it continues to escalate is a dominant hand roundhouse punch and then it sort of escalates from there, and the observations that that Miller makes in his book i mean they're they're fascinating so so he he um outlined this based on uh, his experience uh, as as a police officer, you know outside of bars and various venues, you know especially when young guys are drunk, like this these kinds of things are are uh, pervasive, right and i it wouldn't surprise me if maybe not every guy gets to step four where a punch is actually thrown. But it wouldn't surprise me if more than half of guys have gotten to step three of that monkey dance. Um, And so so what's what's interesting about it is that uh, is is the sort of the, the the commonality of it across different kinds of people and also who is involved in the monkey dance. Like, who do we choose to get into the monkey dance with? It's always or almost always two young men who are roughly the same age and roughly similar in physicality. And it almost never occurs between a man and a woman. Uh, it doesn't occur between, you know, a man and a young child or between, uh, you know, so so a man wouldn't in- get involved in a monkey dance with uh, someone who's obviously high on drugs or crazy. Uh, it, it typically only occurs when there's some question about who would actually prevail in this physical contest. If these two guys were going to a fight, we actually don't know who would win. And it's funny, you know, I, I remember when I first read this in the book. Uh, a story came to mind where I was, uh, you know, it was, it was a story from when I was in college. Uh, I was walking through uh, uh, downtown with a couple of my, my college friends. And suddenly this very short, and he was young, but he was a short and very disheveled and very um, just, you know, a dirty homeless guy comes up to my friend and grabs his hand. And he's like, hey, do you have any money? And my friend pulls his hand back and he's like, oh, don't touch me. And this this homeless guy like starts reaching like trying to like get into his pockets and my friend is like running around and he's like I could tell he's extremely confused because on the one hand he could I mean it was pretty clear that he could take this guy in a in in, like a physical fight but on the other hand this guy was so uh, dirty looking that he just didn't want to to get physically entangled with him and so he's like running but at the same time trying to demonstrate that he was willing to fight him so he was like backwards running his hands were up but he was still like running and then my other friend gets involved and, like, tries to, like, separate them. But then the homeless guy starts chasing him around. And my friend is – so it was, like, this comical scene. And I'm watching all of this. And uh, and I'm just laughing at it because, like, you know, I didn't want to get involved because I didn't want him to touch me. <laughs> so I'm just watching this. And, uh, and and so that story came to mind of, like, okay, so, you know, that was a case of, like, uh, a, a monkey dance that was that was thwarted, right? Like, something going on here where, like, they they weren't afraid of running because it was clear who would win the fight. And so they didn't feel like they had to stand their ground. But there was also this part of the male psychology of like, I don't want to look like I'm weak. Like I'm I'm going to like turn my back and like start sprinting away from him. Um, and so 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 the monkey dance is like, you know, two guys who would win. We don't know. Usually between strangers. Monkey dances very seldom rise between uh, like friends in, in, in a group in which the sort of uh, the relationships are established. Uh, guys roughly know where they stand, those kinds of things. Whereas um, in environments in which people don't know who would actually prevail, uh, you know, oftentimes people will encourage fights. They'll encourage them to see. They want a, a rough and accurate estimate of what each person is, is made of and whether or not they can hold their ground. You know, when, when you see two guys fight and you see how they handle themselves, you yourself get a sense of like, could I take this guy too? You know, who would I do better against? Um, and interestingly, some some recent research um, I want to say from Aaron Sell, I hope I'm getting that right, uh, about the the evolutionary psychology of the concept of a fair fight, and this appears to be uh, an evolved psychological mechanism of like across different cultures and throughout you know, different societies. Uh, people have strong feelings about cheating in a fight, which is actually I mean It's kind of funny that you'd have that because it's like two guys trying to beat each other up and potentially You know inflict uh, physical harm and on one another and disfigure each other and whatever and still You know, it's like certain things you shouldn't do and if you do do like you'll be judged in some way and the idea that they propose in their research is that the reason is because people want this this estimate not only do people want the estimate of the fighting ability but people themselves involved in those kind of altercations want to uh, to signal their capacities right like if they rapidly escalate and and suddenly you know kick the other guy in the balls and, and gouge his eyes out and do all these things you know pull out a weapon then They actually don't get to signal anything about their strength, their endurance, their their speed, their capacity, all those things. They're they're really just signaling like they're a violent and crazy person, which which can be useful to signal that in some instances. But if you really want to impress people and potentially impress men such that they will confer status on you and you can get women, you know, pulling out a switchblade and, and using dirty tactics isn't going to to get you that right. It's going to be like slow escalation, monkey dance, fair fight. Uh, You know, don't don't cheat, you know, don't cheat and and, and, uh, uh, fight in a way that's fair and that's honorable. Um, And I think you can see this with uh, with with sporting contests, of course, boxing and MMA have very strict rules about about what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. And you can even see this with like like young, young, young boys when they're roughhousing and, and, and playing with each other. Uh, they can sort of intuitively grasp that like, yeah, maybe you can slap someone, but you shouldn't hit them with a closed fist. So these kinds of things are, are kind of like, you know, built in and they're, you know, I think in, in itself, it's an interesting adaptation and the monkey dance is a sort of a, uh, it is a, a ritual around which people can, can display and, and also to observe,
0: uh, men's formidability and, and willingness to, to prevail in a fair fight. And if you don't continue to play fair, the effectiveness of that matchup at judging who is more physically formidable goes out of the window. Because it's no longer about you being more physically formidable. It's about you being prepared to be more wild or more crazy. I wonder whether this would tie in, I'm thinking like ancestrally with regards to maybe um, contests for leadership and stuff like that that you would get prestige from winning in a fair fight, but you might get dominance from winning in a rapidly escalating fight, that you would rule through fear if you were the guy that was completely crazy, but you might rule through respect if you were the guy that did things in a more fair manner.
1: That's interesting. So you might get, yeah, so so yeah, the idea of of prestige where people freely confer status on you versus dominance where you sort of impose costs and instill intimidation that would make sense to me. I mean, I think in that moment, it might actually work, right? This sort of rapid escalation, uh, you know, using dirty tactics. In that moment, it's probably, yeah, people people would fear you and be intimidated by you. But if the, you know, it depends on, yeah, what, what your sort of uh, short-term, long-term evolutionary goals are, too. It's like, yeah, you may get dominance, but if you don't get the respect and the sort of admiration of of those guys, then... You're you know, up a tree and everyone's know, you're, you're, taking yeah. your
0: weapons and they're stabbing you on the way down well, I, <laughs> well there's that and then yeah they they, they don't uh, like yeah you don't have the,
1: the status necessary to be attractive to, well, to a good
0: a, a good example of this i suppose uh to try and think about an uh situation in which a fight would happen and a man would choose to not play by the rules on purpose might be if he was outnumbered by a bunch of men. You often see this in movies, right? Mm. If you've got one protagonist versus a gang of five and he takes the first person that comes at him and curb stomps him and totally fucks him up, why does he do that? Why does he decide to break those rules? It's because rapid escalation is a threat that shows I am prepared to go beyond the level that you guys are prepared to go to. Uh, And it's a a scare tactic. And the reason that he does that is long-term respect and prestige is not something that he's optimizing for in that fight
1: yeah right he's optimizing for survival yes right yes. And so in that case well yeah yeah I've seen that too I mean in in uh fights where one person is clearly bigger than the other uh I've noticed that people are more lenient as far as how harshly they'll judge the smaller combatant. oh you're allowed so to like, kick you know, the bigger guy they, in the balls yeah you're allowed to kick him in the balls or maybe you're allowed to like bite him or or something like that right or uh uh you know if if there's a, a weapon uh that isn't too dangerous that you're allowed to use that too and so yeah i mean yeah on the one hand you are um like you're optimizing for survival over uh you know prestige or status and yeah you're also um at the same time, though, people are perhaps, you know, depending on the on the context, they are still willing to confer prestige on you if you're, you know, an especially small person up against someone who's much larger than you, mm. or if you're one guy up against five and you still manage to prevail. You know, even if you bent the rules a little bit, it's still like, okay, that was still impressive regardless, and therefore, you know, the 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 sort of the the status penalty isn't isn't quite as severe.
0: I liked the insight that you gave around. Uh... Not the minority report what's that what's that fucking movie where there's like five of them the born the, the, the born Bourne series it's yeah the so I did, yeah Jason Bourne all of the every single movie um he gets into a fight with some bastard in a balaclava who's snuck into the apartment where he 's <laughs> staying, and this guy comes out of nowhere, and they usually start a fight. Uh, so it's kind of like a, a, an immediately escalated monkey dance, right? So there's no, like, what the fuck are you doing or whatever. They immediately go to step five. But from that step, it further escalates from there. So they'll have a fight, and then usually Jason Bourne will accurately defend his attacks and, like, hit him, and he'll fall through a, a table. And then when he falls through the table, he'll pull out a knife. And then you go, mm. oh, he's not playing by the rules. And what always happens, Jason Bourne never pulls out a knife, or if he does it yeah. it's it's a it's a knife as he's been thrown across the kitchen counter and he he picks up a, a, a peeler or something like a potato peeler <laughs> like it yeah. you know it's always a weaker shitter version or I think there's one I've definitely seen one of them where he uses a pen I've seen another one where he, I think he uses a book like beat like starts punching this book into yeah. this guy's throat. Point being the it, what you recognize in the imbalance of weaponry within that fight is that there is something more noble, mm. more prestigious. Uh, about Jason Bourne's conduct than about this other person's. He didn't break the rules of the monkey dance up until this guy decided to escalate it. And then it's like, as a byproduct of Jason Bourne's pure lethality as a human, the guy ends up falling out of a window onto a passing car or something.
1: Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there there, there were cases where he... Well, yeah, he's never the one to, to rapidly escalate, right? Like He has killed people, but it always appears like he's a little bit reluctant to do it. And like, you know, because that's sort of the, the honorable hero story. Um, yeah, I remember like the, the, the first movie, right. He uses the ballpoint pen. The second movie, the guy pulls out like this giant knife and Jason boards, just like reaching, like just like behind him. He's not even looking for anything. He just grabs a magazine and rolls it up. Oh and yeah. That's he selection. fights him with the magazine. magazine. Yeah. And he's able to hit the guy and the guy's missing. And so it's like, yeah, there's a, The the violation, right? Well, immediately, I guess there's this kind of violation because every single time it's a CIA assassin who usually shows up with a gun and then, you know, born like somehow, you know, knows that he's coming and grabs his gun and disarms him and then it becomes hand to hand combat. And, uh, and yeah, there they're like a lot of movies are like this where it's never the hero who behaves, uh, dishonorably or who, who cheats. It's always the sort of the adversary unless, and, unless again, like you, you mentioned before, unless the protagonist has, you know, five or six guys all on him at once and then he'll like grab, grab a weapon even if the other guys don't have one or something like that. I think there was a, there was a scene in, I think it was Spectre, the James Bond movie where, uh, where he's on the train and there's this massive guy, like you know, two feet taller than him. And they're 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 first like boxing, and James Bond's actually doing pretty well, where he's dodging the other guy's punches. But his but his blows aren't doing anything to the other guy. And I think at that point he like grabs something and and breaks it over the guy's head, and it actually doesn't do anything either, and and so on. And it kind of escalates from there. But in that case, it was like it was totally understandable that this guy was literally twice Daniel Craig's height and weight. Wait. Or, like, you know, they're, they're about. Uh, so you need to like, okay, even so grab ba- something. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Did yeah, you yeah, in have that you case, seen? Uh, like, yeah, I was forgiven. Have you seen House of the Dragon? I haven't seen that one. It's the most recent Game of Thrones that everybody's talking about. I, yeah, I haven't seen Rob, it. come on. Come on, <laughs> I Rob. never
1: got into Game of Thrones. Never, I couldn't get into it. Well, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm the, the last te- guy on Earth. I'm yeah. going to
0: tell you, yep. I'm going to tell you about it in any case. There's a scene in that. Let's hear it. Where one of the uh like semi bad guys families it's it's very complex right the the reason i say this has been complex is that you see in one scene someone take dirt and throw it in the eyes of another child it's a bunch of children that are all fighting for small amount of dominance and one of them takes dirt and throws it in his eyes because he is inferior in terms of a fight and then later on the one that's had the dirt thrown in his eyes ends up losing an eye as one of the the, these other children um, slice his face open and, and like cut his eye. He loses an, an entire eye due to mm. this. But what it shows is you don't really know who's the goody and who's the baddie. And the reason that I bring it up is mm. because it, it it's endemic of the way that Game of Thrones is written. That hang on a second, there is no victor loss here. The the kid that just got his that just lost his eye also. 10 minutes before that acquired the largest and oldest dragon in all of Westeros. So it's like, what's going on? Who's the good person? Like he calls these children bastards and then they have been persecuted for a long time. And you go, actually, who am I rooting for here? And that, that is why I think game of Thrones is particularly enthralling because the typical roles of good guy, bad guy, uh, protagonist, enemy, the lines are nowhere near as clear cut, and that means that everything is open to interpretation. And I may think that the kid that stabbed the other person's eye is totally within his rights, and the guy that I live with might say, "No, no, no, it's com- completely out of order." And it it allows people to take. No one is going to say Jason Bourne wasn't within his own rights to punch the guy in the throat with a ballpoint pen or whatever. Like that, it's, it's that's what the story leads you to believe. But yeah, it, it's. uh you need to get in game of Thrones is is what I'm saying. Robert.
1: there's a there's a great uh, um uh, I, I think it might have been in forty eight laws or maybe it was one of Robert Green's books where he makes this point about how the same act can be construed completely differently based on the reputation of the actor, right? And so you know if 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 a good guy protagonist does something that's distasteful, people may not like it, but at the same time, it's like, well, he's the protagonist. We've seen him do these other good things. And so we'll we'll let them slide on this one versus like if a villain does even a moderately unpleasant thing, you know, where we're, we tend to be horrified by it. But it sounds interesting, like this 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 kind of storyline where like, actually, you know, you don't have enough information about the sort of uh, the archetypal character roles where you can have that sort of mental shortcut of like he's doing this thing. But because he's the good guy, it's probably OK or, or you know, that that kind of thing where like you have that, um you know, the the, the knowledge of of the, the character in advance
0: and. So,
1: you know, maybe, yeah, maybe I'll have to maybe I'll have to give the show another try sometime.
0: I think you'd be able to not have to invest 7 seasons into the first game of thrones and just watch the most recent HBO series. I reckon you can get away with that and that's like a 10-hour maybe less than a 10-hour investment and then, you know, next time that someone brings it up, you you know what I'm on about.
1: My taste might be too too conventional. You know, I remember I watched that first season of game of thrones way back when it was on the air or maybe a year later. And I remember they killed, is it the Sean, Sean Bean character yeah, 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 yeah. or, Straight yeah, off. and I remember like, yeah, like, oh, okay. And then, you know, I got a little into the second season. I'm like, I don't know. I just, I just, I just couldn't get through it. So, so, you know, maybe, uh, maybe I need to, you know, maybe, maybe my tastes have evolved since then. But You've become we'll, you we'll a see. more sophisticated
0: we'll human, I think, since then. All right, man, let's, <laughs> perhaps, let's, let's perhaps. wind this one up. What are you working on at the moment or what cool stuff have you got coming up?
1: Uh yeah I mean I'm still still uh, writing essays for my Substack I have some interesting pieces in mind I want to do a series on this book called Games People Play it's this classic book on transactional analysis by this uh, this guy Eric Byrne uh, a lot of people are probably familiar with this book it's still sometimes you'll see it in like airports and bookstores and you know, it's essentially this you know basically what are the most common interactions that people often have with each other and what are their underlying or hidden motives. Throughout the sort of uh, social interactions, and what you know, what what are the payoffs? And so I'll do a series on that. Um, I'm still working on my book. My publisher continues to uh, you know, uh, uh, irritate me, and to yeah, the nightmare industry. But the book will be out, I think, spring 2024. Uh, so it, it's a memoir, uh, which uh, you know, I hope you'll have me back on. We can talk about that and uh, more stuff on on luxury beliefs and this idea I've I've been developing too. So. Yeah, I think that's that's enough for for now.
0: Where should people go if they want to check out the stuff that you're writing online?
1: Yeah, so you can go to my substack robkhenderson.substack.com and you can follow me on Twitter at robkhenderson. All right man, appreciate you. All right, thanks Chris.